Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Well, good morning, beloved. Raise your hand if you speak Caribbean Patois. Oh, everyone there. <laughs> Show of hands for those of you who have been to the uh, Cayman Islands. Ah, well, it considered us an open invitation uh, to come join us there. Well, we have again the privilege to open God's Word and to look upon Christ in His Word. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me again to. Matthew chapter 9 and 10. So we look there. And as you turn there, I wonder if I could ask you a question. If you had to write an essay, however long or short, on what most people hold as a philosophy of life today, what kinds of things would you put in that essay? You were thinking of the sprawling suburbs of Santiago. What do you think the people there hold as a philosophy of life? If you were thinking of France, the people of France, how might you describe what they believe and and what they base their lives upon? Or if you weren't traveling so far, perhaps you were traveling to the center of the universe in Northern Ireland. Kalabagi, Kalabagi. I want to pronounce it correctly. Perhaps you were just going to Calabagay. <laughs> what do you think the neighbors and friends there hold as a philosophy of life? What, what, if you were writing an essay to describe what your neighbors think, what would you include in that essay? What kinds of things would people commonly say as an expression of that philosophy? What, what things would they hold dear? What things give meaning to life for them? What would they define as truth? And what matters would they consider to be ultimate matters? Well, perhaps you might write something about pluralism and relativism. Perhaps you've heard people say things like, we should respect all people. All people have a right to their own beliefs. All beliefs are equal. How can we know for sure what we believe is the right belief? Perhaps you've heard that before. Or maybe some notion of tolerance and acceptance would be prominent in that essay. So, you know, people would say things like, all people in beliefs are to be respected. We should not judge others. As long as what other people believe and do don't, don't hurt other people, then it should be okay. Who are we to, to judge? We should, in our society, make room for and accept the choices and rights of all people, people no matter Or maybe that essay would focus a little bit on autonomy, self-rule, where increasingly people seem to be governed by the idea that what is right is what feels right. Now, I don't imagine that many of you are, maybe you are, connoisseurs of rhythm and blues music from the States, but there used to be a song that was very popular, a love song, and the refrain went something like this. If loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. 
Well, it seems that many people have that kind of attitude. Uh, they say that a person should follow their own heart. They should do what they think and feel to be right. As, as long as a person feels good about what they're doing, then who are we to judge? Perhaps you've heard that kind of thinking as well, that kind of autonomy, that kind of self-governance that's really driven by emotion, feeling. Well, I wonder if our neighbors, our friends, I wonder if we, if we hold any of that, if we've ever brought that thinking into the light of Scripture. I wonder if we've ever asked ourselves, as we've contemplated our own philosophies of life or the philosophies around us, what would God's philosophy be for us? How would the Lord himself rate these ideas? How would he respond? How would he judge or critique them? Particularly the notion of who rules. As we come to our text this morning, we, we will see who rules. And we will see, Lord willing, that the one who rules uses that rule in such a way as to bless all of mankind. And the particular form that that blessing takes is what we've been considering in the Bangor Worldwide Mission Convention. It is missions. So reading again our section for this morning, Matthew chapter 9 through the end of chapter 10, we'll read the entire section for context and we will come back and focus on the first 15 verses of chapter 10. And there we want to focus on three things. We want to focus on Jesus' authority Jesus' apostles and the Lord Jesus' assignment. So we want to consider Jesus and the call to missions. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the Excuse me, to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. He called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town among of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth. 
It will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household. So do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives the one who sent me. Anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not. Lose his reward. Let's ask the Lord's blessing upon his word. Lord, we do thank you that you are so gracious a God. as to promise to your people an exceeding and great reward. And Lord, we do thank you that you have opened our blinded eyes to see. You've cleared, O oh Lord, our clogged ears that we might hear. Indeed, in the preaching of the gospel, you have given us new hearts. The old things have passed away and we do behold how, Lord, all things have become new in Christ. We thank you for your gracious love, for your great compassion. We thank you, Lord, for your marvelous patience. 
And we thank you, Lord, that you now are our portion. You are our treasure. Be with us, O Lord, in the preaching of your word, that we might see you and love you and be drawn even nearer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first thing we wish to take note of this morning is Jesus' authority. We see that beginning in chapter 10, verse 1. He called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. When we come to think about Jesus, we are thinking not so much about a martyr, not so much about a, a great man misunderstood and mistreated. We're not thinking merely about someone who who should have been loved and welcomed and respected. We're thinking about one who holds all authority in his hands. We are thinking about the God-man, fully God and fully man, the one who possesses all authority. A proper authority includes at least two things. It includes both ability and right. It includes the ability to do what it wills and a corresponding right, a corresponding prerogative to so do so. i give you an illustration. Our friendly police officers here in Northern Ireland may, may have the right to pull us over for some traffic violation. And depending upon what we have done, they may have the right to, to search our automobile or to search our persons. And they may have the right to write a citation charging us a fee for having broken this or that law. They, they have authority. They have both the ability and the right to do that. But they don't have the right to force us to buy a certain kind of computer. They don't have the right to make sure that preachers always wear gray suits. You know, they don't have the right to redefine the center of the universe. That doesn't belong to them. That's not their authority. They may wish to do so, and they, they may even claim that Belfast is the center of the universe, but, but we all know better. They don't have the right to redefine reality that way, do they, brother? Authority carries with it both ability and the kind of rightness, the justness of carrying out that ability. And that's what Jesus has. He has that kind of authority. And in our text this morning, we can see, we can see at least three ways, three things that demonstrate that Jesus has all authority. First off, if you look at verse 5, the beginning of the verse there, these 12 Jesus sent out. Jesus' authority is demonstrated in his ability to, to send out men on mission. And down in verse 8, he commands them to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cleanse those who have leprosy. It's demonstrating authority there. And in verse 1, Jesus delegates some of his authority to his disciples to, to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. See how sweeping is the Lord's authority, his right to rule and ability to rule. He exercises authority over men. 
And not just men, it's an authority also over life and death. He has the right and the ability to raise dead men to life. See, his authority that covers both the spiritual realm and the physical. With but a word or but a touch, with spittle, Jesus opened blinded eyes and and heals lepers. And and here he he demonstrates the ability to, to drive out demons. We're not dualists. We don't believe that there is an evil power equal to the good power of God. No, Christ rules all things, seen and unseen, spiritual and physical, things pertaining to life and death. In summary, Jesus has authority over all things. This is the Bible's consistent portrait of Christ, this Savior we have come to love. He sits enthroned. In glorious authority. Consider, for example, the the magnificent words of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 19. Here's what the apostle writes there. He writes of Jesus' incomparably great power for us who believe. He says that power, God's power, is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet. And appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills everything and in every way. When you flip over a couple of books to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. We get this parallel statement to Ephesians 1. Listen to the description of Christ and his supremacy. He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And this is not just a song of men on earth. If you would look in Revelation, the fourth chapter, we see that this is the song of those saints and angels in glory. 
We begin in this life to sing of Jesus' supremacy, to sing of his authority and greatness and his rule. But this is only the beginning. In all of eternity, the universe will echo with the praise of Christ, the risen King. We will for all of eternity sing of his supremacy. So in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, you see there the scene of crowns cast before the throne. And the company crying out, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. And scan over to the scene in the very next chapter, Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. For all of eternity, we will sing of unspeakable and horrible things. Namely, the crucifixion of Christ. But in speaking and singing of those unspeakable and horrible things, we will be singing to a power and a glory and a king who's worthy and demonstrates his worthiness. Even in those things, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Verse 13, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. This is what men sing. This is what heaven sings. This is what the apostles write to us of, the supremacy of Christ. This is what John the Revelator sees when the veil of heaven is open and he gets a glimpse of the worship around God's eternal throne. I mean, is this, is this just a preacher's flourish? Well, you know, preachers are accustomed to using grand and lavish words and illustrations. Is this just something that the Bible writers do for effect? Is this just style overshadowing substance? Oh no, this supremacy and this rule and this authority is what Jesus himself taught about himself. Even in this very gospel, Matthew's gospel, at the end, Matthew 28, verse 18 and 19, what has Christ confessed of himself? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is who we're looking upon here in Matthew chapter 10. The sovereign ruler of the universe. And because Christ Jesus is the sovereign king of all creation. Well, things like a worldly pluralism. A worldly relativism. And human autonomy are all ruled out. Every knee will and must bow to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We may not safely live as though Christ has no claim on us. Each of us wholly owned by this glorious King. And this is good news. This is extremely good news. 
I mean, we, we live in an age that is quite openly and frankly skeptical about authority. Uh, perhaps since the 1960s, at least in the United States with that, that, re- that cultural revolution, generations have been taught to question authority. Young people had seen increasingly question their parents and question the authority of adults. And many people believe that power corrupts. That power is inherently a corrupting thing and that absolute power corrupts absolutely. But God intends that his authority should be married to his love. Jesus' absolute authority is good news because as we considered yesterday, he's also the Lord of compassion. The king and creator of the universe, well, he rules in mercy. He rules in compassion. This is why God's rule is not tyranny. This is why his commandments are not burdensome. This is why he's no petty dictator and oppressor. No, what does Jesus tell us? Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek, lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. That's the invitation the sovereign ruler of all things gives to his creation. To take his yoke, his rule upon us and so enter into rest. And notice something else. Jesus himself invests all of his authority and all of his compassion into the eternal rescue plan of worldwide missions. Jesus takes his omnipotence and he takes his right to rule. And how does he use it? He forges into battle like a king riding before his army. He forges into the fray, into this mass of humanity weak and helpless and harassed and lost. And he uses his omnipotence to overcome even the hardness of human hearts, to turn men away from destruction and turn them to life. This is why this king of glory willingly goes to the cross. And this is why this compassionate savior, though he be ruler of all, sends his servants into the field to preach his gospel. And therein we see the good and benevolent quality of his rule. Well, that's Jesus' authority. Consider now Jesus' apostles in verses 2 to 4. See who Jesus chooses. He does not choose the nobles and the wealthy of his day. He does not choose the religiously well-instructed of his day. He does not choose the wise. He does not choose the strong and the powerful. As my brother said a moment ago, he chooses 12 rather ordinary men. Now we know them as the apostles. But interestingly, this is the only time in Matthew's gospel where Matthew uses that word to describe the 12. It's the only time he talks about them going about apostling. 
During Matthew's day, during these events, they were just 12 ordinary, mostly working class men, fishermen and bureaucratic tax collectors and the like. These are the sent ones of Jesus. These men, earthy and and swarthy and smelling of fish and salt water or, or I guess, is that salt water in Jerusalem? Water. These are the men that Christ chooses. And who of us is not ordinary? Deeply ordinary. And this means that we are precisely the kind of people our sovereign Lord deigns to use. The glory of his power is seen in the weakness of his vessels. Uh, this was the great Apostle Paul's attitude. You recall in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, after rehearsing his, his weaknesses and his pleas with, with God to remove that thorn of the flesh. This is what Paul concludes. He says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest upon me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We are ordinary people. But that's no limitation to God. We are weak people. But that only means that the power of Christ rests upon us. We are mistreated and despised people as Christians. But that only means that Christ's glory and power are perfected in and through us. I mean, what do we imagine our weaknesses to be this morning? Is it old age? Abram in Genesis 12 was 75 when the Lord called him. And look what marvelous use God put him to. Is it youth? Well, God speaks to the Apostle Paul to the young pastor Timothy, a co-laborer with Paul, and he tells Timothy, let nobody despise your youth. You be instant in season and out of season. Well, is it sickness or disease? Need we be reminded that Christ took upon himself our infirmities. He bore our illnesses. Is it a lack of wisdom? Is that our weakness? Well, God takes the foolish things of the world, the, word, the things the world sees as foolish, and he confounds the wise. Perhaps it's our poverty that makes us to feel weak. But this sovereign Lord owns cattle on a thousand hills. He's not without resource. Is there any reason then that each of us should not consider the front lines of mission work? If our weakness and ordinariness are no limitation to God, should it be a limitation to us? Shouldn't we, like Paul, glory in our weaknesses?
so that Christ's power might be seen all the more brilliantly. These are 12 ordinary men that the Lord calls. And though these are definitely ordinary men, I, I wonder if you see something rather curious about the transition between the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10. At the close of chapter 9, yesterday we considered that Jesus instructed these same disciples to pray for the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the field. And immediately after the instruction to pray for workers, chapter 10 opens with the Lord sending these same men out on mission. In other words, the apostles become part of the answer to their own prayers. Christian, you have already received the compassion of Christ when he, when he gave you the gift of faith that leads to eternal forgiveness in life. I wonder if you realize that you have also become the walking, praying embodiment of Jesus' compassion in the world. You and I are the answers to our own prayers for workers to go into the vineyard. You and I are the answer to past generations' prayers for workers to go into this plentiful field. These disciples here recorded in Matthew chapter 10 and chapter 9 prayed for workers 20 centuries ago. 2,000 years ago, and 20 centuries later, Jesus has saved you and I. We stand as the living, breathing embodiment of fulfilled prayer. And so we stand as the living, breathing embodiment of Christ's ongoing work in the world, a work that to this day continues to send people into the harvest. And perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. You, you have not come to saving faith in Christ. You've not confessed him as the only ruler and Lord of all of creation, including of your life. I, I wonder if you recognize this morning that what I'm doing right now, standing here, preaching and examining God's word, is answer to prayer of past generations of Christians. And I wonder if you recognize the people sitting around you, perhaps the Christian friend who has invited you here today, is answered to these very prayers. And I wonder if you realize something more personal than that. But the fact that that friend brought you along, and the fact that you have ears now to hear God's word preached, is a tangible demonstration of God's kindness to you now, personally. It's no accident that you're here. It's no accident that you are hearing these things. It is rather the result of a very specific intent and design. God's intent and design that you should hear the gospel, the good news, this wonderful message that though you are a sinner, as we all are and were, you may be rescued from your sin. You may be rescued from the wrath of God against sin. And you may enter this moment, even this instant, by God's grace, into an unending and indestructible and glorious life, a new life 
through faith in Christ. It's no accident that you're here this morning. I wonder if you will receive God's kindness. If you will hear his message and believe. If you will turn from sin. Turn from self-rule. From autonomy. From the rejection of Christ's lordship. Humble yourself. And submit to him as the only sovereign king. It's why we exist. And it's why God has sent us to you. Who will enter into life. Well, consider finally. Not only Jesus' authority. Not only Jesus' apostles. But Jesus' assignment. There in verses 5 to 15. Notice in verses 5 and 6, there's a, there's a geographical scope and a cultural scope that, that Christ gives to these disciples. They are not to go to the Gentiles, and they're not to go to the Samaritans, folks who were partly Jewish, partly Gentile. They are to go to the lost sheep of Israel. The gospel is to the Jew first. The covenants and promises of God were first given to this nation that he had created. This nation that we know is Israel. And here in this training mission, the apostles are to go to the lost sheep of Israel. But by the end of the gospel, when the, when the master has completed his own earthly ministry, he sends his disciples not just to the, the lost sheep of Israel, but indeed into all nations. So in Matthew 28, notice how he, grind, he, he grounds or bases worldwide mission in his own personal authority. So in Matthew 28, verse 18, which we mentioned a moment ago, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. And this is the continuing mission in which we have the joy and the privilege to participate in, to take the news of Christ to the entire world. Well, now our scope is expanded, but, but our activity is much the same as theirs. So in verses 7 through 11 or so, Jesus begins to tell them of, of what this mission entails. Verse 7, preach this message. Notice it is Jesus who defines the message. The kingdom of heaven is at is near. In verse 8, he gives these apostles authority to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. They are to do things that accompany, that, that signify the coming of the kingdom. And notice verses 8 through 10. Do not take Along any gold or silver or copper in your belts, take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or staff, for the worker is worth his keep. They are to go in faith. They are to leave aside those things that their hearts may be tempted to trust in, their own wealth and their own resources. And they are to go in complete dependence upon God, upon Christ, who sends them out to serve And in verses 11 to 15, they are to go searching high and low for those who will believe. Whatever town or village you enter, search, seek, scan, scour, pillage, plunder, unearth, look, turn over. Search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. 
If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I'll tell you the truth. It will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. You have to look for worthy persons, deserving persons. And those are not people who have something in them that commend God's love. Those are people who hear the gospel and receive it with gladness. Those are people who hear this news about Christ and believe. They welcome the apostles and they welcome the message the apostles bring. Look over at verse 40. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives the one who sent me. That's what makes them worthy and deserving. Not what's in them, but who they receive. And there are really only but two options. There are only two ways to live. To live for Christ. To receive him and to follow him. Or to live for self. The end of which is worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. See there, verse 15. It will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town who rejects the gospel. Rejects the message. Freely, verse 8. The apostles have received, now freely they are to give. The good news of the kingdom is not for sale. God's salvation is freely Offered to all. Then for the apostles and us. Mission life. Is a profligate life. It is a a life of of promiscuity. Of of promiscuously spreading. This good news. Of liberally lashing it upon. Or lavishing it upon. Our hearers. Freely we have received. Freely we give. And notice. Notice. The Lord's economy. Verse 9. In the first part of verse 10. They go taking nothing along. Only this reminder from the Lord. That the worker is worth his keep. But in verses 11 to 15. See how the Lord supplies their needs. It's by those who receive the gospel. Those who hear and believe. They. They participate in supplying the needs. They open their homes and, and open their tables and, and supply to those who bring the good news. Going in missions is a wonderfully noble task. These are people who are worth their keep. But so is giving. Giving is a noble and wonderful task. Our missionaries are worth their keep. The Bible tells us that in verse 10. And the Bible also tells us it is right for us to honor such persons, to to extend to them our commendation and our respect. My wife and I have been so encouraged in our few days here thus far. We've been delighted to meet many of you who have spent a lifetime among unreached people in foreign lands. You've gone without money and possessions. You've gone trusting the sovereign Lord who saved you. We've met folks who've served on the mission field 40 and 50 years. 
And we've met younger persons who seem to be in the, in the bud of life, only about to bloom, only about to flower, who have forsaken the other accoutrements and offers of this world and, and are eagerly heading into the same endeavor, into the mission field. And you haven't done it for the applause of men. Well, that work can be a lonely work and an isolated work. It can be an unseen work. And yet it is appropriate that we pause and we give to God glory and honor you for giving yourselves in the cause of Jesus Christ. Indeed, that's what we have modeled for us in in the text of Scripture itself. Over in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes to those Christians in Philippi, and he mentions a co-laborer named Epaphroditus. And he's sending Epaphroditus back to the church at Philippi, who had sent Epaphroditus to Paul to supply his need. He was essentially on a short-term mission trip. And while on that short-term trip, taking supplies to Paul, Epaphroditus nearly dies. And Paul writes back to the Philippians in verses 29 and 30 of of Philippians chapter 2. And he says, welcome him, Epaphroditus. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy. And honor men like him. Because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. See there what Paul says the saints' attitude is to be to those who have gone out on the field and given their lives for Christ. We welcome them, we receive them with great joy, and we honor them for their sacrifice. You know, the armies and nations around the world are given great honor. We think of the valor of men and women who have given their lives in the cause of justice or freedom or the protection of land and liberty and life. We recognize them as heroes. How much so, how much more so, ought we to honor and rejoice and applaud and commend those men and women who go, and they don't take life to preserve it, but they give their own lives to win, as it were, eternal life for hundreds, yea, thousands, perhaps in the Lord's economy and time, millions of souls. How much more ought they to be honored as real heroes and heroines of the Christian faith? They have marched on the banner of heaven. Christ has been their captive, their captain. They have entered into the battlefields And they have risked all that a glorious and great harvest might come to know Christ. And so I just want to end today's meditation by recognizing those of you who have given so much of your life to serve Christ, our captain, on the mission field. And to recognize those of you who have entered on, entered into that work afresh perhaps recently. And those of you who may be feeling the stirrings of Christ even now, saying to you, go. There is no more noble calling. There is no greater task. And there will be no greater reward 
than to hear the captain of our salvation say to you, well done, our good and faithful servant. Hear now from those of us who consider it an honor to pray for you and to give to your work. Hear now a foretaste of that divine benediction. Well done, brother and sister. Well done. We praise God for you. And we pray that you would know a foretaste of his joy over you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ Jesus, your Son, in whom all authority in heaven and earth resides. And we praise you that you are a God of such enormous power and equal compassion that you have chosen not, not in your grace to destroy us, but indeed to love us and in your love to redeem us and in your compassion to send us to find others who might enter into your love. And we thank you for these men and women who have gone out, who have heard your call, and who have laid down their life only to pick it up again, only to find your reward and to see your glory demonstrated in their weakness and in the conversion of souls. And Lord, if we had but one request, we pray that you would do it more and more and more as the day approaches. Here we are, Lord. Send us. In your name and for your glory. Amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.